Welcome to SW The Pulse podcast. I'm Cherry Reynard, and today you're joined by Daniel Casali, Head of Investment Strategy at Smith & Williamson. In this episode, we'll be discussing Borisnomics. This week, it's become increasingly clear that Boris Johnson is willing to move mountains to take us out of the EU on the 31st of October, deal or no deal. Um, The assumption is that he will take steps to mitigate the impact of a potential no deal. Um, So what might this look like? Daniel, could you talk us through Borisnomics as you see it? Hi, Cherry. Uh, The first thing I want to say here is that Borisnomics is not necessarily going to offset the no-deal Brexit risks. What it's designed is, is to mitigate some of those risks. In terms of a broad outline, uh, I think at the heart of this, Borisnomics would be the fiscal side, and that means tax cuts and more fiscal spending. Uh, The second part would also involve monetary policy, uh, and how the government can influence Uh, the Bank of England's monetary policy. The third part could be on deregulation, to move broadly away from the regulations that we have in the EU and say workers' rights and climate. And then finally, I think one area uh, that would have low-hanging fruit and easier to do would be in the housing sector, where we could cut transaction costs. And that in itself, given that it's got a high correlation to private consumption, can actually give you some support to overall growth. Okay, uh, let's, look at, let's look at those individually. Um, I mean, in, in terms of fiscal spending, the budget surplus has actually been falling recently. Um, so does Johnson really have the headroom to announce big sort of spending plans and then, but also tax cuts at the same time? Uh, actually, the UK still has a budget deficit, uh, it's, but it's very low. Uh, it's only about minus 1.3% of GDP as of the end of the second quarter. Uh, but that's well below the 2% budget deficit target uh, that's entwined in the 2010 uh, Fiscal Responsibility Act. So if you look at the difference between the current budget deficit and the fiscal deficit uh, ceiling, there is significant room there. Boris has already made some announcements in terms of the tax cuts and the more fiscal spending on the NHS uh, police and also education. Uh, altogether, if you add them all up, it's something like uh, close to 1% of GDP. So it would be moving the budget deficit target above that 2%. Uh, there is another area that um, Boris Nomitz could have an influence in terms of more fiscal headroom, and that is to change some of these fiscal rules. Instead of having a sharp reduction in debt to GDP, if uh, Javi, the new Chancellor, or Boris Johnson, wanted to keep the debt-to-GDP constant, uh, then that could provide something like £250 billion over four years in terms of extra fiscal headroom. I think that's a significant amount of money that can be used to spend. I'm not saying uh, that this Tory government would spend that amount of money, that would make them equivalent to Labour, uh, but I'm saying that there is some flexibility here in terms of the fiscal policy to support the overall economy. Okay. And do you believe that would be effective? Whether that Would that give the economy the, the boost that Johnson would hope for? Or is that, is that anyone's guess? Well, that would be the boosterism, as uh, yeah. Boris Johnson calls it, and maybe it might find itself into the, the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, I think what's important here is 
the type of uh, fiscal headroom that he's providing. It's coming in form of tax cuts, so lower national insurance contributions, lower income tax, admittedly for higher income earners, uh, but also a little bit more spending in terms of NHS and uh, education. Uh, the combination of that, along with the other parts of the Borosonomics, as I described, so a much more easier monetary policy, along with deregulation and in terms of the housing, I think it's taking a holistic approach, looking at all four factors together, can have a bigger bang for your buck, so to speak. So it could have a significant influence in at least supporting the economy to mitigate some of these no-deal Brexit risks. And, I mean, last time I looked, the Bank of England was supposed to be independent. So how can Johnson do anything to influence policy? Well, yes. So uh, Gordon Brown introduced the independence of the Bank of England way back in 1997. But where the government can influence the Bank of England is the appointment of, say, for example, the governor. So Mark Carney will step down in January of 2020. Boris Johnson and uh, Javid and the, and the government administration, they can have a significant influence in who they appoint as the next Bank of England governor. Uh, I would hazard a guess that the next appointee would be quite a dovish person, uh, and that could facilitate the additional fiscal spending, for example, that Boris Johnson is proposing. Uh, I also would expect the new Bank of England governor to maybe propose more quantitative easing, which is the expansion of the Bank of England balance sheet. And maybe the Bank of England governor uh, could actually change the Bank of England's mandate on inflation. Currently it's 2%. Uh, they could increase it to, say, 3%. The combination of that could give uh, much more flexibility in monetary policy to support the overall economy uh, during this crisis of Brexit. So longer term, low interest rates are still on the agenda, but well, certainly in this in this scenario, yeah. Uh, but I think it's just more than that. It's what can they do in addition to having low interest rates? And I think uh, if we were to do another round of Bank of England quantitative easing, it could have a significant influence on the overall economy and financial markets. Just to give you some stats, if you look at uh, the share of the Bank of England's assets to GDP, it's 22%. For the Fed, it's 19%, so it's similar to the US. But if you want to look at the ECB, it's 40% of GDP and 100% uh, for Japan. So there is significant room that the Bank of England could expand its balance sheet uh, at this juncture. Okay. Now, um, looking at deregulation, I, I mean, it became a bit of a dirty word in the wake of the financial crisis because many people felt that deregulation of the banks contributed to the uh, to the problems we saw. Um, what form can you see this taking under a Johnson government? Well, in, in the past, uh, Boris Johnson has talked about divergence in UK rules uh, from the EU, in particular sectors to raise productivity and also to exploit uh, new technologies. One area could be in the financial sector reform, for example. Uh, but just to give you a template, we probably have to look at President Trump and how he introduced deregulation into the US. Uh, he, if we went back to January 2017 when he came into office, what he introduced was uh, deregulation where for every uh, regulation that was introduced, he cut two. This was one of his first executive actions. And we saw that small business confidence over there in the US started to pick up quite significantly. And eventually with the tax cuts that were passed in Congress in December 17, we had the supply side reform that helped to drive the economy and also financial markets. So I would expect more of the same coming from the other blonde bombshell, <laughs> which would be more supply-side reform 
and it's a combination of the tax cuts and the deregulation, along with maybe a bit more easy monetary policy, basically very similar to the US, but it has been a tried and tested formula in terms of supporting the overall economy. And it's important to recognise that the one big surprise we've seen in the US is a recovery of productivity. It suffered under President Obama, but due to cutting this re regulation, it's led to a big uh, uptick in this productivity growth, which is good for longer term. Okay, so it wouldn't be a sort of freewheeling deregulation of the banking sector. It, it would be focused on, on sort of other red tape and... I think it'd probably be a combination of multiple factors. I think yeah. just deregulating in the financial sector would be deeply unpopular with the yeah. broader electorate. So yeah. cutting some red tape in business would probably go down pretty well. And I think that's what you need to do to balance it a little bit more. And of course, you've got the global financial crisis where they did deregulate in the financial sector. And look what happened there. Yes. Yeah, no one wants to go back there. Um, now, housing um, is another key target for the Prime Minister. He's talked about cutting stamp duty and um, trying to sort of loosen up, um, loosen up the market. I mean, what's his thinking there? Is it is it getting transactions going again, and that would boost the market or boost confidence? Or um, how do you see that working? I see, if you look at the housing market, um, one of the reasons why it's doing poorly, it's not just due to Brexit and the uncertainty of maybe a Corbyn government, it's also due to the high cost of moving uh, from house to house. Housing transaction costs have risen under the George Osborne uh, Chancellorship uh, and that just makes it difficult for people to move. And because of a less liquid market, we're seeing prices generally come off. If we were to have uh, some changes around the edges, edges about uh, reducing stamp duty, I could very well see uh, that house prices could start to rise. Um, it would generally mean uh, a stronger support to the overall economy because there's a strong correlation between house prices rising and the overall uh, private consumption, which is two-thirds of the overall economy. So I think as a low-hanging fruit in order to support the overall economy, uh, cutting housing transaction costs uh, through stamp duty would be an easy one to do. Yeah. Um, and then what about the risks? Um, so what happens at the end of all this? You know, obviously it's going to have a, an impact on the structural budget deficit um, and um, hopefully it should boost growth in the short term, but does it introduce problems in the long term? I mean, how do you, how do you see the longer-term consequences of this Boris Nomics? I think the biggest risks for financial markets in the UK uh, from Boris Nomics is whether, uh, one, it works and reduces the probability of uh, Jeremy Corbyn getting in. If it fails, then there's a high risk that Jeremy Corbyn could get in. And just to give you a flavour of what Jeremy Corbyn's government has already said, uh, they've made no secret of their desire to nationalise uh, the utility companies like water, energy, railway companies. It's unclear how investors would be compensated in the event of a renationalisation. Mm. Uh, however, as a guy, the Sunday Times in May this year, for example, uh, they published a leaked labour blueprint uh, that uh, renationalised water companies would be valued at huge discounts to their market value, just to give you a flavour. Uh, and aside from the renationalised utilities, the bigger risk to the overall UK equity market is what a proposal by the Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell, uh, said late last year. He said he wanted to establish inclusive ownership funds. Uh, these are The plan is basically to require companies with 250 plus employees to allocate 
10% of their stock built up over 10 years uh, to funds uh, which would reward uh, dividends up to £500 to, uh, for example, employees, with the rest going to the government. Arguably, these inclusive ownership funds would amount to something like 10% uh, expropriation, effectively. Uh, and this would be viewed very, very negative by equity markets. So I think the bigger risk from Borisnomics, if it fails, and it could give uh, a leg up in support to uh, left-wing Jeremy Corbyn, which would have negative implications for the equity market, I think that's a bigger risk than trying to guess what the economics is going to be. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks a little bit like Trumponomics. Um, and, I mean, has, has that been successful? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, the equity market has increased since then. We've had more growth that's come through. But as I said earlier, I think the biggest success from Trumponomics is the fact that the productivity rate has picked up. And productivity is generally seen as looking at the long-term economic trajectory of an economy. Uh, just telling you people are becoming more productive with what they do in terms of goods and services. And that suggests that it's non-inflationary growth. And that's really the, the holy grail that economists want to see. Yeah. Um... Now, Sterling has obviously um, take, borne the brunt of the ebb and flow of sentiment over Brexit um, and has been very weak recently with uh, talk of no deal. Um, to what extent are these various different scenarios priced into Sterling as it stands? I mean, could it lurch much lower should a no deal happen? Uh I mean, our base case is that we expect Sterling to fall further from here. Uh, as it current markets today, it's currently trained around 121 to 122 against the dollar. Um, if you want to look at its post-war low, it's 1.05 back in uh, early 1985. Uh, so it could fall about maybe 12% from here. Uh, that would be under a no-deal Brexit. Um, I think what we have to look at is not necessarily what Sterling does towards trade, because uh, as companies start to relocate their manufacturing from one country to another because of Brexit, this will take years, if not decades. I think what we've got to look at is much more the short term, and in that we need to look at these short-term capital flows. Just to give you a flavour, if you want to look at, uh, according to data from the Bank of International Settlements, they show that UK cross-border claims, so it's like things like short-term deposits by the EU in the UK, is something close to £1 trillion. Pounds. The UK cross-border claims in the EU is something like 600 billion. So there is a deficit there. And it tells you that if the talks with the EU end acrimoniously, uh, we could see a situation where EU banks, for example, withdraw a huge amount of that money, or all of it, and that would leave further downside to come from sterling, which could lead to a uh, shortage of liquidity and higher interest rates. That would be the worst case scenario. Uh, so that's kind of 400 Billion as a possible outcome. In a worst case scenario where yeah. talks end acrimoniously, it could uh, be very, very negative for sterling. Uh, but at some point, we would see uh, it's almost like catching a falling knife where the Boris Nomics would could eventually kick in and support the overall economy. And you'd find uh, that there is value in UK stocks at the moment, they're very, very cheap. Uh, and you could start to see overseas investors uh, once they see light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, actually, with a no-deal Brexit, at least we know what would happen, uh, that they could start mm. to see value in the UK. Um, and uh, domestic-facing stocks have been very cheap, um, and, and, and international stocks have had a... UK-listed stocks have had a tailwind. Um, 
could those stocks get cheaper still? Yes, I think where we'd be favour is more these international stocks, like a hard Brexit basket, uh, rather than um, sort of domestic stocks, which would be seen as a soft Brexit basket. And the key driver is, of course, the exchange rate. As the exchange rate gets weaker and weaker, those international companies that generate their earnings, like BP overseas, those dollar earnings, when translated into a weaker currency, boost the underlying earnings. Plus, those earnings are not generated by weak economic growth at home in the UK. Whereas domestic stocks, for example, Lloyd's, uh, is wholly dependent about domestic operations. And they've been suffering of late. So we would expect, as sterling continues to fall, to be much more focused in these international stocks rather than domestic stocks. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the international backdrop as, as well. I mean, because that hasn't been great. I mean, there's been weakening global growth, particularly in the manufacturing sector. Um, Trump's been in action again this week, sort of saying talks are on with China and talks are off with China and this kind of thing. Um, how great a risk do you see the, the US-China trade tensions? I mean, is that an ongoing problem? Could there be a resolution? What does it all mean for stock markets? Well, firstly, I'll take a step back and when uh, these trade protections started. It started in early 2017 uh, when Donald Trump started to launch an investigation into steel uh, and also uh, aluminium imports as a national security concern. Uh, global, global exports have barely been grown at all. But I think the crucial thing here is as we get closer and closer to November 2020, which is the next general election, I think Trump will be much more likely to move towards a deal with China. The last thing he wants to do is have a situation where uh, this trade protectionism precipitates a global recession or a recession in the US which would reduce his chances to get re-elected. I think we've actually seen some signs of that, for example. Uh, in August, I know President Trump announced another round of tariff increases uh, for 300 billion of Chinese exports to the EU, uh, for the US. Uh, but Trump has already backtracked on this. He's already put off when these tariffs are going to be introduced into mid-December. Uh, but also, very importantly, um, the US has also granted, granted a 90-day extension uh, for certain US businesses to work with Chinese company Huawei, uh, so they can now export tech products to this company. And that too has been delayed into uh, December. So I think uh, some of the worst impact of what we've seen from this trade protectionism under President Trump is likely to dissipate as we get closer to the November election. And it's also worth bearing in mind what the Chinese uh, side here. Uh, in the 1st of October, we have the 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. The last thing President Xi wants is lots of disruption from trade affecting its global growth. And we only have to look in Hong Kong. He has another problem over there with all these protests going on. And the last thing he wants is to start another trade war or aggravate it more against his biggest customer like the US. Yeah, absolutely. And so <laughs> with all that in the mix, what do investors do? I mean, what is driving markets? What should they be looking at? Well, at Smith & Williamson, we've uh, developed a trade sentiment index which looks at media uh, sources and looks at words that could be defined as showing a deteriorating trade environment or an improving trade environment. Well, what we do is we don't just look at trade sentiment. We take a more holistic approach and we look at trade sentiment. We introduce it to the actual fundamental earnings but also interest rates. As we know, central banks have played a key role in driving equity markets. And once you put all those factors together, we find that the market is actually uh, fairly valued. In other words, the trade sentiment is not the overarching factor. 
it's been more than offset by, uh, for example, the Fed, which had been raising interest rates at the start of this year, has now already cut them once and has looked likely to cut them even further. So I think we have to look at it in the context of what trade sentiment has done to having a much more easier Fed monetary policy. The combination of those two things and the fact that earnings, uh, although a lot of analysts said that they would decline this year, are still actually growing. So there is some uh, positive fundamental news coming from companies. So if there, I mean, if there is still scope for risk assets from here, are, are there any areas you're particularly favouring? I mean, you mentioned international stocks in the UK, but you know, any particular markets around uh, the globe? Ironically, even though Donald Trump uh, has introduced the trade protections around the world, I think the US stocks have uh, survived much better than their rivals. Mm -hmm. And that's the simple fact that the, a lot of their earnings are generated domestically. Uh, roughly about 12% of US exports after GDP has so got a low share. Uh, so I think US companies look a lot better than, say, for example, their European counterparts, where Germany is on the brink of recession and earnings are struggling. Uh, so even though Donald Trump has launched all this trade protectionism, uh, he's almost making America great again. Great. Okay, thank you so much. At the much expense for, of everybody else. At the expense of everyone else. <laughs> um, that concludes our episode today. Um, thank you so much, Daniel, for your Pleasure. insights and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Um, all references and links that we've talked about in this episode can be found in the episode show notes. Uh, please tune in to future episodes. You can subscribe to our show if you haven't done so already and rate and review us in the App Store. Until next time, thank you. Thank you. This S&W The Pulse podcast is of general nature and is not a substitute for professional advice. No responsibility can be accepted for the consequences of any action taken or refrained from as a result of what is said. The views expressed are not necessarily those of the presenter or of Smith & Williamson or any of its affiliates. No reproduction of this podcast may be made in whole or in part for professional or recreational purposes. No action should be taken based on this podcast and we accept no liability if we change your views on any of the subjects mentioned.